0: Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Children are now dismissed to children's church. Um, two weeks ago, we started a series on the book of Exodus. We looked at Exodus chapter 1, and there we saw that the Israelites uh, who had moved to Egypt when uh, Joseph uh, became the second in command to Pharaoh and the Famine was really bad in Canaan, and so uh, the Israelites' family uh, came there. They increased so much that the Egyptians became afraid of them and hateful of them, and they pressed them into service and into slavery, and they were still increasing, and it freaked them out, so they decided to go the route of genocide. And Pharaoh initially ordered some uh, Hebrew midwives kill all the baby boys, and the midwives refused to do it, and they told Pharaoh, oh, they just give birth too fast, we can't make it. And so Pharaoh, frustrated, turned to his own people and said, Pharaoh orders the Egyptians to throw all of the baby boys into the Nile. With that backdrop, we look at today's passage in Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you, uh, and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. The persecution of the Israelites under the Egyptians um, was the backdrop for Yahweh, God's covenant name to his people, to show his mighty hand of deliverance. This is a a tale really of two masters, Pharaoh, the cruel master who seeks to suppress, oppress, destroy, and Yahweh, the God who delivers his people through his mighty right hand. This was a very horrific order to murder all the baby boys, but it actually becomes a unique opportunity for God to raise up his deliverer, in a very unique context. Moses is without a doubt one of the most important figures of the Old Testament, if not the most important figure in the Old Testament. Not only does he write the entire Pentateuch in the Hebrew canon, this is called the Law or Torah, that means Law, Torah. Um, He writes these books, but he becomes the quintessential leader, the prophet leader. In fact, all the other prophets to come are a paradigm are in his paradigm. Also, other deliverers, kings, deliverers, all follow this paradigm that Moses sets of delivering God's people from the hand of oppression. In fact, he is a type of Christ, and there's some very interesting parallels between Jesus of Nazareth and Moses that we'll look at today and in, in coming weeks. Moses was God's chosen instrument of deliverance, And as we'll see, actually, later on as we get through Exodus, he's a reluctant deliverer, but he is God's chosen man. And God was orchestrating his life from the very beginning. I want us to look, uh, first of all, at the first two verses. Notice there is no name given to this man from the house of Levi or his wife, a Levite woman. All we know is that in the midst of of this genocidal order, this husband and wife become pregnant, and she bears a son, and he is a fine child. In fact, actually, the, the Hebrew word there is not fine, as in like he looks good. It's he's good. He's tov. He is pleasing. He is what a child should be. And so she hides him for three months. Why? Because compassion because she loves her child, because she cannot bear the thought of following Pharaoh's wicked order of murdering him. This is what a good mother does. But why are we not given their names here? We are actually given their names in Exodus um, 6.20. We're told actually that um, the father's name is Amram, and his mother's name is Yachabed. Now, if you're wondering what, what is that? That's because it's Hebrew, and you have to hawk up a little phlegm when you say it. Yachbed. Um, why are we not giving their names here? I think the reason we're not giving their names here is because we should identify ourselves with them. They're every man. They are nameless. They are you, and they are me. What would you do if there was an order from the civil governor saying, "Kill your child, kill your son?" Would you obey or would you hide him? That's what you're supposed to be doing. This is what the reader is supposed to do as they react. They should identify with this couple and say, I can't stand the thought of murdering my son. I will not follow this wicked order. But there's nothing remarkable about this couple at all. They are very ordinary. We're never told stories of their uh, great bravery after this. Surely this is an act of bravery to disobey and hide the newborn for three months and, and then to uh, put him in a basket, but they seem to be very ordinary people. There's interesting uh, Jewish legend surrounding it. I was recently reading Josephus, and Josephus records this very uh, extra-biblical story about how uh, there was a seer in the court of Pharaoh who foresaw deliverer among the Hebrews. And that's why he ordered this. And then um, Amram was this brave man who got a, a word from the Lord that he was supposed to have this deliverer son, and they had to protect him, and all of these sort of things. And there is this struggle early on in the baby's life where um the, uh, the, prince, the Egyptian princess was going, hey, look, here's my son, and the seer was going, that is the deliverer right there, and he tries to kill him, and it's this scuffle in Pharaoh's court, and he's miraculously spirited away, and it's this whole thing. None of that's in the, in the biblical account, though. I think the reason this, these sort of legends arise is because we have to try to embellish and say, well, they were, they were special people, but the way that Moses originally writes this is they were very ordinary Very normal people that were put into a very bad situation. The Hebrew midwives had shown great compassion and great courage to disobey the order to kill the baby boys. And the Levite parents here are put into a similar situation where they are also put into a situation where their compassion and their belief in doing what is right forces them to disobey even great Pharaoh. Remember, they are slaves. They have no voice. What do you think would happen if it became known that they had been hiding their son? It's their own lives on the line at that point. We're not talking about a fine. We're not talking about some jail time. We're talking about their own lives. But they're willing to do that because they thought it was worth it. Because compassion is an extremely powerful motivator. Compassion can push people to do extraordinary acts of bravery. Compassion is a beautiful thing that we really must encourage. In fact, Exodus has a number of women that do great things out of compassion. They save lives, even choosing to disobey the most powerful man in the world, willing to put their own lives at risk. Compassion means that we feel for someone else. We should be moved with compassion because it is a God-given response when we see the suffering, the plight, the hardship of someone else. We put ourselves in their place. We should encourage this sort of thing. One of the great problems that we have as a people is a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion for someone else. We can't put ourselves in their shoes and try to look at it from their perspective. But this is a powerful thing. In fact, it's commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ in, in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked uh, by the, the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is able to summarize all the law and the prophets by saying, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a fascinating thing, the way that he connects these two, that the ethics of the kingdom require compassion, love for someone else. What does it mean, though? What does Jesus mean by love your neighbor as yourself he's actually quoting from leviticus 19 where it's laid out explicitly what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself the kingdom ethic is to put others before ourselves it means acting in their good not so much the emotional things so too often times we think about love primarily as a feeling but it's not primarily a feeling it has aspects of that, but the commands to love your neighbor as yourself is not a command to feel affectionate for your neighbor so much as seek their good. Look at things from their perspective. Help them out. Act for their betterment. does not come naturally, though. We're all born selfish people. We're all born seeking our own ends and born willing to steal that other kid's toy because I want that. I don't care if he's done with it. I don't care if he's already playing with it. I want it, so I will take it. This is inborn in us. It's ingrained in us. But we must understand that love of neighbor doesn't stand alone. It has to be controlled. It has to be put into the context of love for God. Why? Because we don't even understand what it means to act in the good of someone else without that reference point of what is good. Let me give you an example. The heroin addict. He goes, okay, I'm supposed to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I sure do love heroin. I will give my neighbor heroin because this is going to really help him out and make his life what I want it to be. Is that a good act? No, it's not. He needs the the guidance of scripture to help him understand what is actually good. What is actually good is not always what somebody wants. Sometimes the good that you seek for someone else is actually doing something that they don't want, like speaking the truth to them, like warning them of their sin, like calling them to repent. All of our lives are to be seen in the light of of our relationship to God, that God is our creator, that he is our savior, that he has delivered us from our sins and that he has commands that dictate how we now ought to live. The connection between loving God and loving neighbors is clearly seen. We're gonna look at uh, that passage in uh, Leviticus 19. Leviticus um, is often an intimidating book for, for many people. It's rarely someone's favorite book of the Bible. If you say, what's your favorite book? I've never heard somebody say Leviticus. It's often kind of scary. There's a lot of detailed, um, sacrificial instructions. Um, But there's gold to be had if you can mine in Leviticus. Follow along with me. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What an interesting command. Don't harvest everything down to the last bit. Leave some for the poor and the sojourner. Why? That's loving your neighbor. It's giving people an opportunity to feed themselves, to work and support themselves. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of of your God. I am the Lord. Fascinating. Again, speaking the truth, seeking justice, is loving of neighbor. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. What's going on there? It means you're genuinely concerned. It means you see somebody else's weakness, they're deaf, they're blind, and you're going to act to protect them means you are not going to cause them harm for your own entertainment. means that you don't oppress the work. The employer doesn't oppress his employee. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sins the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord each time by the way that it says i am the lord what it actually says is i am yahweh i am yahweh therefore act in the good of others you see the connection love god means you love people and you treat them well. And these are very practical, boots-on-the-ground kind of ways. It's one thing to say that you love people in an abstract way, but it's harder to love people with faces and with sins, and they smell bad, and they track mud into your house. It is much harder to love the reality of people than it is to love the abstraction of people. But we are called to love people in reality, Loving them as they are, not as we prefer them to be. And that's the kind of love that we see. It's one thing for this Levite woman to go, yes, I, I love children. But when it comes down to it, are you willing to put your own life on the line and do what you have to do to actually protect life? And she was. This actions-oriented, speaking the truth in love. Even being willing to disobey the civil authority for the sake of protecting life is love of neighbor. Jacob's compassion on her son is a good example of the sacrifice that love sometimes requires. What she did was hard. It would have been a lot easier for her. Imagine the stress that she was under during those three months, every time the baby cries. She's going, shh, 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 please, 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 please. But she's willing to do that. It would have been a lot easier for her to just obey the order, but it would not have been better. What is good and what is easy are rarely the same, but we are called to do what is right. This Sunday is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. It commemorates the Uh, Roe v. Wade decision 46 years ago. Accurate estimates are hard to come by because many states like our own state don't keep accurate records of how many abortions have been actually committed. But most estimates are somewhere around a million a year. A million a year, babies terminated before they have the chance to be born. Of course, people always bring up um, extreme cases, rape or incest. The last time uh, a a real study was done asking women, why did you choose to get an abortion? It was about 1% that were rape or incest. 1%. 99% are done for convenience, not because of the health of the mother, not because of rape or incest. I would propose that as compassionate Christians, we need to be concerned about a million children every year being murdered for convenience. And I wonder how often it's just easier not to think about it. I often don't think about it because I don't know what to do. What, what can you do? You can pray, you have one vote, it's like everyone else. You can vote. You can talk to people about why life is important. The old argument uh, back in the 70s for it was that it's just a lump of cells. It's it's not a person. As technology has progressed, science has really blown that particular argument out of the water. you can't really, in good conscience, say that uh, that baby has a heartbeat nearly from the time you know you're pregnant. That baby has its own DNA. The argument usually says something about, um, well, if, you're, if you are pro-woman, you're pro-abortion because a woman's body is, is her right. You know what the problem is with that, uh, that argument? Well, it's not her body. The argument isn't, uh, we don't want you to pierce your nose. Pierce your nose, who cares? The argument is, we're talking about another person's life. We're talking about the life of a little baby, the very definition of the defenseless the vulnerable. You can't get more vulnerable than that precious little child. There are many arguments that are proposed in favor of abortion, but I would propose this. Can you really justify taking another life because it would be a hard life? So let's not give the baby a chance to be born. Oh, she's not ready to have a baby. The dad's a deadbeat, okay. Is that really worth the life of the child? I would encourage you to think carefully about this issue. Educate yourself if you need to about what's really going on. And think about how we can support women that are in a position that they're considering abortion. Adoption's a good option. We have several uh, pregnancy clinics in Maryland that do a great job of educating and giving resources of support Um, we can consider how each of us can take part in trying to end this slaughter. Maryland, by the way, is one of the few states that you can get an abortion right up through the end of the pregnancy. It's actually a destination state. If you are in your third trimester and you're in Virginia, you can't get an abortion. If you're in your third trimester, you come to Maryland and you do it. We're also one of the few states that it does not require a minor to inform their parents. Maryland is one of the most pro-abortion states in the country, to our shame. Moving on. The mother, Yachabed, Yachbed, sorry, um, has this plan to preserve life. The method to save her baby was pretty unconventional. Get a basket line it with pitch to keep it from leaking, put them in the Nile. It's not maybe the most (laughs) promising of plans. In fact, if I was uh, Amram and uh, my wife told me that this was the plan, I would probably (laughs) try to say, let's think of something better than that. It makes me nervous, honey, putting our son into the river. But they're slaves, they don't have the right of travel, they can't just run away. They have very limited options about what they can do, and so they come up with this plan. It's interesting, though, that the um, English translations translated as basket because the word isn't actually basket, it's teva, which, as you know, is ark. It's, it's, it's the same word, actually, that is used in Genesis chapter six, where God tells uh, Noah, Build a teva. He doesn't say, Build a basket. This build an ark. In that case, of course, he builds this gigantic thing that is capable of having all these animals. Uh, Moses' basket was not gigantic; it's you know big enough for a three-month-old little baby. But the idea is actually the same. In fact, the same verbiage is even used, where in, uh, Gen- in Genesis six, uh, Noah is told to. Um, build an ark and and daub it with pitch and cover it with pitch to keep it from leaking. Um, Yachabed also uh, has this basket and she daubs it with bitumen and pitch to uh, seal it. Both cases, they are made to save life from destruction by drowning. Making the baby a little ark was the only way the poor mother could think to save her baby. She did not know what was going to come next there doesn't seem to be a firm idea of, okay, so we put him in the Nile and then he floats into the ocean? Is that, is that the plan? What, what, what comes next? He gets eaten by a crocodile? Nile crocodiles are famous. There's a lot of crocs in the Nile. There always have been. Uh, it's not even a safe plan, but she's willing to try. In a funny way, she's actually kind of obeying Pharaoh's command, because in uh, one twenty two the actual language that Pharaoh uses is, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. She's kind of casting him in the Nile. She doesn't say anything about putting him in a Teva, but uh, she technically, I suppose, by the letter, obeys this horrific order. The Levite mother had done what she could for her son. What would happen next was out of her hands. This was not a safe plan, but it was the plan that was available to her. And she chose to risk potential harm to escape from certain doom. She knew as this baby gets older, she can't hide him forever. There's going to come a time where that baby is too loud. He wants to run around. You can't keep him hidden forever. Um, We know uh, from this text that he's not an only child. We know that he has an older sister. She's not named here, but we later on learn her name is Miriam. We also learn that he also has an older brother named Aaron. But at the time that this happens, he's only three years old. He's three years older than Moses, so he's not able to really even show up in this story. Um, Miriam uh, watches from a distance to see what would happen. We're not told actually, is this Yachabed's plan? Was she told, go watch your brother? Or was she just being a protective older sister? I have an older sister who's always been very protective of me, uh, sometimes to my annoyance. But um, that could have been what's going on here. There could have just been the plan of, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll put him in and, and leave. Or she could have said, go watch over your brother, maybe protect him from a crocodile. What a young girl is supposed to do against a crocodile, I don't know. Uh, But she's watching from a distance and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. What was expected to happen, who knows? But they had to preserve life. Whatever her intentions for placing this little baby in the basket, God had a plan for her son that she could never have imagined. Never would she have thought oh, I'm going to put him in the river and then he's going to be adopted by the Egyptian princess and then he is going to lead our people out of slavery. No, she's just trying to protect his life. God preserved Moses. Yahweh made a plan, but it was God that actually preserved Moses. The Egyptian princess, we're told, comes to the river to bathe. Could be in a ceremonial way, could be in a hygienic way, but she's down there. This is probably a routine thing for her, and she happens upon this little basket full of baby. She was likely intrigued by the sight of this basket. He was probably crying, and uh, she heard the noise, and this is unusual. There's not usually baskets of babies floating around in the Nile, um, but today there was, and Fortunately, the one who finds this little basket is compassionate toward him. When Pharaoh's daughter saw the baby, she too was moved by compassion for the child. There's two things you need to keep in mind. Number one, she definitely knew her dad's orders about the baby boys. Definitely knew that. And the second thing, she knew that this was a Hebrew child because she says it in verse six. This is one of the Hebrew's children. So any thought of Maybe she didn't know. Maybe she thought he was Egyptian. No, she knew as soon as she saw him. That is not one of ours. That's a Hebrew baby. And she chooses to disobey her father's orders. Now, for her, what could the consequences be of disobeying her father's order? I don't know. Probably not death, but his displeasure. He's made it known these Hebrews are a threat to us. So his daughter undermining him by adopting one doesn't look good at all. Having an Egyptian royal find this Levite baby should have actually been the worst case scenario. Because if anyone is likely to kill this Hebrew child, you would think it would be the family of the one who gave the order to kill all the Hebrews, right? That only stands to reason it's very unexpected for the daughter of the Pharaoh who ordered the genocide to be the one who shows such compassion. We don't know this Egyptian princess's name, but we do know God was certainly working in her heart to move her with compassion this way. The cries of this child seem to have softened her heart and caused those motherly instincts born into women to move her to do this great act of adopting him. Now, up until about six and a half years ago, I thought it was far-fetched to think of a a woman finding a baby and then just adopting him. But six and a half years ago, on a hot August Monday morning, I was coming to church. Uh, It's normally my day off. I don't come in on Mondays. Um, But this particular day, I came in, and there was a crying baby next to the front door of the church. Now, there's no one at church. There's no cars there. We haven't been there since Sunday. And so it was very confusing. And I looked around and I'm like, what's, is this a joke? I don't get it. There's babies in the church. I looked at the baby. That is not one of ours. I have no idea whose baby this is. There's no note. There's no nothing. It's kind of bewildering. You've heard about people abandoning babies at churches, but you don't really ever expect to see that. And uh, so my first instinct was call 911 and explain, I didn't take the baby. <laughs> don't blame me. I just found it. I don't know why I was actually afraid of that, but I was kind of afraid that they were gonna say that I stole him or something. But fortunately, they didn't do that. That was my first phone call. My second phone call was to my wife. Now, at the time, we had a two-year-old and an infant, okay? Gideon was just a little guy. In fact, he was about the same age as the baby I found. And um, my wife's first instinct was, bring him home, we'll take him. And I said, "Cat, we can't just adopt him. We don't know who he is, we don't know the situation. We, we, maybe, but that's down the road. I, I, I appreciate your instinct, but for right now, that's not the thing. Now, the, the police came, paramedics came. Um, I was still at church, and then a little bit later, somebody else shows up, Debbie Radichak shows up, and she said, I heard you found a baby. I'm here to take him. <laughs> I love babies. I will take him, and I will take care of this baby. And that's the day I learned women are superheroes. (laughs) My first instinct was not, let's keep him. My first instinct was, I hope they don't think I took him. (laughs) Their first instinct was, I will take him. No questions asked. I'm bringing him home with me. That's a beautiful thing. That is amazing. And I love that that was the first instinct. Actually, just recently, I noticed that the father of that baby, who I never met, um, messaged me on Facebook years ago. I never saw the message. And uh, I didn't know that there was like a secret messages from people you don't know section of Facebook, but my wife showed me there's a secret message part. And this father was saying, thank you, you saved my son's life. And here's pictures of me with him. And it was this beautiful thing of like, wow, that's amazing. Um, So anyway, his name's Michael. Uh, I don't know where he is now. I, I saw his family for a little while after that. Actually, I saw, him, I saw his family a year after that when I was testifying in court about what happened, and I met his older sisters. I would assumed that it was a teenage girl or something that was scared. What it actually was was a 32-year-old woman with three other children. Sounds strange? It is strange. Um, she decided that she couldn't handle this baby. She didn't want him and so she was just going to abandon him. I'm glad she didn't try to murder him, but I wish that she would have um, not just abandoned him out of church, because that baby would have died. The paramedic said if he was out here another hour, hour two hours maybe, he'd probably be dead, because um, he's dehydrated. And interestingly enough, she uh, put a bottle in his car seat with him full of milk. He's about four months old. that's not really all that helpful. Um, But the the news picked that story up to make people aware of the law is you can um, give your baby away, but you have to actually hand him to someone. You can't just abandon him on a property somewhere. In fact, the Maryland law is you can give a baby under eight weeks to any responsible adult, Um, but you're, you're not supposed to just Abandon a baby at a church or a, a fire department or something like that. Uh, why? Because then it becomes a, a terrible game of find the baby before it dies. And nobody wants to play that game. It's a horrible game. And uh, every time I've come to church for the last six years, I check that corner over there because he wasn't actually placed next to the front door. He was, you know, the front door there. Then all the way over on the left, there's like a corner back there. That's where he was. So if he wasn't crying, I never would have seen him. And then we would have just found him. And it's, it terrifies me thinking about finding a dead baby. Um, thank God that didn't happen. Thank God that I was, I was there in an unusual time. Um, and thank God for the compassion of women like uh, Debbie Ratajk and, and my wife who were saying, I will take that baby. This Egyptian princess has that same kind of compassion. She finds this baby and says, I'll take him. His sister Miriam saw this princess. Uh, We don't know how far away she was, and I wonder if she tried to play it cool like she's just passing by. Oh, I see you found a baby. Do you need a wet nurse? I know a wet nurse. Let me help you. I don't know if she played it cool like that or if she was uh, just so excited she forgot that she was hiding and then just kind of came out and said, hey, you want a nurse? In either case, it's quick thinking on her part. She's excited, she's surprised, she wants to help, and God has a sense of humor because the mother, who was afraid that her baby was going to be murdered, now is paid to take care of him for several years. It wasn't uncommon for children to nurse until they were four or five years old, and it's not unreasonable to think that he was you know, four or five years old Uh, when he was given back to the care of the Egyptian nurse. So, this, uh, Jacobet is given this great gift of being able to not only save her son's life, but be paid to take care of him. What a beautiful picture of redemption that is. This Egyptian princess has great courage of her own to be willing to adopt this Hebrew child and... um, pay for him. We don't know, but I'd wonder if she ever put it together that the wet nurse that she's paying is actually his, his mother. Uh, we're not given that insight, but I do wonder. You know, normally the, uh, the wet nurse, when you hand her the baby, doesn't uh, cry um, and, and kiss him over and over again. Uh, but I, I suspect that uh, Yachabed was just overcome with joy to have her son back. So for three, four, maybe five years, he's raised with his own mother and father. He's not only taken care of, but he's he's taught some rudimentary things about what it means to be a Hebrew. He's able to see them live. And then Pharaoh's daughter officially adopted him. Now, we're, there's kind of a gap in the story that I wonder about, where it says... Um, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. How hard was it to do that, to hand over her son and say, okay, he's yours now? I, I got to think that, that that was not an easy day for her. But she knew he would have a better life in the Egyptian court than in slavery, and so he's officially adopted. He's given a name finally. Moses is an interesting name, though. It's got an Egyptian meaning and a Hebrew meaning. The, the Egyptian meaning is something like gave birth to or son of. In fact, you hear it pretty often in names like uh, Tutmos and Amos. Those both mean son of Tut, Amos' son, um, so, what the Egyptian name would be is my son. It's not a terribly creative name, but it's it's a good Egyptian name. The Hebrew name's more interesting, and it's the Hebrew name that is brought out a little bit in the text of Exodus. I drew him out. Uh, Mose Hebrew means to draw out. What an appropriate name, though. Not only was he Drawn out of the Nile, but more appropriately, God will use him to draw the Israelites out of Egypt and lead them into the promised land of Canaan. She has no idea the appropriateness of the name that she gives him, Moses. But again, God does. And Moses is given this very unique position, his name is very reflective of his role. Because he is simultaneously has a foot in the Hebrew world and in the Egyptian world. And he grows up in the Egyptian court. He learns their ways. He knows their way of thinking. He knows their language. He knows their their written language. He understands the, the cultural elements there. He grew up among the Egyptians. He understands them. Who better to represent the Hebrews to the Egyptians than Moses? There is no one better. He doesn't need an interpreter. He speaks both languages. There's an interesting element. Um, In most of the Moses-themed movies, whether that's Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments, those are great movies, I love those movies, but um, in both of those movies, there is a, a, a moment in the movies where he realizes, I'm not Egyptian. And those are great moments, right? Where he goes, oh my goodness, I'm one. Of, I'm the slaves. I'm. I'm. I'm them. How? What? Uh, my whole life is a lie. Um, the actual text of Exodus, you never get that moment. Um, it never actually seems to be a big thing for him. Where one day he thought, "I'm a prince of Egypt," and the next moment he knew, "I'm an Israelite." He seems to have always known and always knew that he was doing both worlds. He always knew that he was an adopted Hebrew living among Egyptians. God had chosen this man from birth. Long before he knew that he was called to rescue God's people, God was already preparing him in ways that he did not understand. God knew exactly what kind of man was needed to talk to Pharaoh, and so he is called to represent Israel to Pharaoh, and so God prepares Moses for this task. What an amazing thing that is. And you can see how Moses is a lot like Jesus here. Jesus also is a man of two worlds. Jesus is God and man. Moses is Egyptian and Hebrew. Who better to stand in the gap and represent his people? Moses was perfectly trained perfectly positioned to stand in that gap, to represent the Israelites' plight to Pharaoh, and we see Jesus is also standing in that gap. He is called our intercessor. In Hebrews 7, uh, we read that uh, Jesus in his mission uh, was that role of intercessor. The former priests were many in number. This is talking about the Levitical priesthood because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, that's Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself, Jesus is able to save us because he represents us. He offers the sacrifice of himself. He is the pure, unstained Savior of his people. Moses draws his people out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus draws us out of slavery to sin and saves us to the uttermost. I love that phrase. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he he always lives to make intercession for them. You ever think about what Jesus is doing right now? He's not just watching Netflix. He's making intercession for you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is representing you to God. In a sense, he's your lawyer. Of course, we all know that lawyers aren't really the most trustworthy of all people, but Jesus, his main argument is, I paid the penalty. It's paid in full. They are mine. I have acted in love to save them. And that is a powerful, powerful argument before God. We are saved from the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus. And just as Pharaoh tried and failed to destroy Moses before he was able to rise and deliver the people, King Herod also tried and failed to destroy Jesus before he was able to rise and deliver his people. In both cases, we see a baby saved from execution by his parents acting on his behalf to deliver them, risking their own lives and disobeying the king, but being willing to do that because it was the right thing to do. In such a contest of wills between god and the civil authority god always wins god is not thwarted by even the most powerful of tyrants god often works through means to accomplish his will like the compassion of an egyptian princess the compassion of a midwife the compassion of a slave woman mother but god accomplishes his will through such humble means he used the compassionate care of Yachabed to deliver her son, and interestingly enough, he will one day deliver her from her slavery. We should stand absolutely amazed at God's wondrous plans. God knew you from the foundation of the world, and he chose to die for you, to reconcile you to himself. Amazing to think about all the plans that God has in his sovereign plan to show his love for his people. And trust yourself to him. He knows what he's doing. He's full of mercy and compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that your plans are unchangeable, that your plans are good for your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek your face continually. Help us, Lord, to be those who are moved by compassion, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to act for good, to defend the innocent. Lord, may we be faithful as your people, to trust in you as our Savior, our Deliverer, the one who draws us out. In Jesus' name, amen.